So, uh, yes, this is a series, this is the second in the series of these talks, which are themes that I've identified in the Pure Land Sutras. It doesn't necessarily mean, say, I'll be talking very much about the sutras. I didn't talk very much about them last week. Uh, I talked a lot about happiness and what the Buddha said about happiness, but I didn't say much about the sutras themselves. This evening, I'm going to draw much more on the sutras, one, uh, two of them, actually, the uh, the shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra and the longer Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. The difference between them being that the short one's short and the long one's long. <laughs> so, yes, last week was happiness, this week is beauty, next week is naturalness, and the final week is trust. Or is it the other way around? I think, that, I think that's the way around it is. So just a quick intro for those who weren't here last week. Uh, what are the three Pure Land Sutras? They, they, they're Mahayana Sutras. They come from the, the great movement that started four or five hundred years after the Buddha, the great movement called Mahayana, the great way to Buddhahood. And in the Mahayana, they envisage um, that the, our spiritual life in this world is happening within the context of the whole universe with many, many innumerable, countless world systems uh, many of them with their own Buddhas. And so that uh, when you have a world system, or roughly you could say that's a galaxy, uh, with a Buddha in it, it's called a Buddha field. And then there are two kinds of Buddha field. There are pure Buddha fields and impure Buddha fields. Pure Buddha fields are, um, I won't go into the too much doctrinal detail here, but basically pure Buddha fields are places where people are happy and there's no suffering. And impure Buddha fields are places where sometimes you're happy and sometimes you're not, and there's quite a bit of suffering. So very obviously, we live in an impure Buddha field. So the whole point, really, of um, uh, the Pure Land Sutras is to imagine. We're trying to imagine. Um, so say more about that later, because imagination is very connected with um, beauty. So a few words about last week, the talk, I talked about happiness um, because um, the Pure Land Sutras, the, 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 Buddha, the Buddha is Amitabha or Amitayas, and this in fact is Amitabha or a picture of a, a statue of Amitabha or Amitayas. And uh, his land or his Buddha field is called Sukhavati and Sukha means happiness. So Sukhavati means the realm of happiness. So from there, I began to just talk about happiness and the Buddha's attitude to happiness. And I mentioned that there were three main levels of happiness, according to the Buddha. There's um, worldly happiness, or you might case, say uh, sensual happiness. Um, and uh, that's the happiness and pleasure we draw from our experience through the five physical senses. Uh, I didn't say this last week, but I thought we could call that human happiness. And then uh, above that, as it were, or beyond that, is unworldly happiness. And this is the happiness of jhana, uh, the meditative absorptions that we gain entry into through meditation. And so, uh, and the jhanas, according to Buddhism, are the subjective experience of the god realms. Or we could say the god realms are the objective manifestation of jhana. So we could call that level... God happiness, or the happiness of the gods. And you might remember I quoted um, the Buddha speaking in the Dhammapada about happiness and 
one of the lines was, uh, happy, how happy are we? Uh, feeders on rapture shall we be like the gods of brilliant light. So the rapture that they're feeding on is the rapture of meditation. And then the third level is the still greater unworldly happiness, which is the happiness and pleasure of awakening or insight. So we could call that Buddha happiness. So you've got three levels, human, God and Buddha levels of happiness. I said a lot more, but that will do from last week. So this week is beauty. And uh, the reason I'm talking about beauty is because in the Pure Land Sutras, the Buddha describes in great detail what Sukhavati looks and sounds and feels like. And it's a land of great beauty. It's enclosed on all sides with seven railings and seven rows rows of palm trees with nets of small bells hanging from them. Everything is made of seven precious substances, gold, silver, lapis lazuli, quartz, ruby, emerald and coral. There are lotus ponds everywhere, brimming with cool, clear, sweet water and lined with golden sand. Golden sand is not a metaphor, you know, like the golden sands of such and such a beach. It's literally gold. Yeah, golden sand. Each pond is surrounded by jewel trees, that is, trees made of precious uh, substances. The lotuses that grow there are as big as cartwheels. So, must be about this big, mustn't it? Lotuses. And they are of four different colours. Blue, yellow, red and white. The ground is golden and showers of heavenly flowers rain down three times during the day and three times during the night. (laughs) So what's all this about? Hello. That's okay. You're very welcome to come. Just make yourself... Don't sit in the corner there. Yeah, get yourself proper seat. Yeah. Um, so what is all this about? Why are, we, why are you listening to this? Why do we read all this? And uh, it goes on for pages and pages and pages in some of these Pure Land Sutras. And frankly, many people find this very, very tedious. It really doesn't work for them. So what is the point of it? So the scholar and translator, Paul Harrison, has asked this question, what is the point of all this? And He's come up with a very, very good reason, a rationale for this. And I'll quote him. <clears throat> so these texts shouldn't be understood as descriptions of something already existing. As if there really was a land out there with golden sand, etc. But as blueprints for something which is to be constructed in the mind. As a template for visualisation. Thus, texts like this are not meant to be read in our usual modern fashion, but performed. That's really interesting, isn't it? They're not meant to be read, but performed. In this light, it might be better if we saw them more like scripts for plays or scores for pieces of music. It's quite wonderful, that, isn't it? Maybe only I find it quite wonderful because I just spent a year reading them and trying to make sense of them. 
but that makes a lot of sense to me. So their practices, the, the texts, I don't think the texts are saying there really is this land and it looks like this, it's made of this. I think what the authors of these texts were doing, whoever they were, we don't know who they are, they remain anonymous, they're inviting us to awaken our imagination. Webster's Dictionary defines imagination as an act or process of forming a conscious idea or mental image of something never before wholly perceived in reality by the imaginer. That's a really good definition, I think. Actual process of forming a conscious idea or mental image of something never before wholly perceived in reality by the imaginer. The interesting thing about these sutras is uh, they take things from this world and then they, they kind of combine them. So you get trees, we all see trees, but they're made of gold and silver and lapis lazuli, etc., etc. Um, so now we've got these two things, both of which we've seen, but we put them together. So you get a tree made of gold. But the tree is not the kind of gold that we're used to, which is hard. And as it were, dead, it's not, gold is not a living thing in the way that a plant is. But this, this golden tree is actually a plant. It's actually living. So it's soft and full of life. So you get these two ideas coming together in your imagination. Where did all this come from? So I have developed a theory that it comes from meditation practice way, way back as far as the Buddha. Now, the Buddha taught many, many different kinds of meditation practices. And the 5th century Theravada commentator, Buddha Gosha, classified these practices in his great work, the Visuddhimagga, the Path of Purity, where he um, uh, classified all the Buddha's teachings. And he referred to the, 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 the various practices that the Buddha taught as the 40 Kamatana. So 40 meditation practices, which he calls Kamatama. Kamatama literally means place of work, which is really interesting, isn't it? So a meditation is a place of work. I really like this because place, Sukhavati is a place, but it's not a place. It's a, it's a practice. So mind and place, very, very interesting um, juxtaposition there. Place of work. So figuratively, kamatama means the place within the mind, the place within the mind where one goes in order to work on spiritual development. Really good definition of uh, meditation, that, isn't it? So, of the 40 objects meditated upon, of the 40 kamatamas, the first 10 are called kasinas. Kasina, K-A-S-I-N-A, Kasina, uh, which um, translates apparently as something like things that one can behold directly. And they are, the ten are earth, water, fire, air. So the four elements. Um, this is interesting because they're supposed to be visual objects, you're supposed to visualise them. So you can understand earth, visualising the earth, water, fire. But how do you visualise air? 
apparently what you do is it's really wind. You look at a tree or a bush and you see it moving with the wind and that's what you, you kind of infer air because of the movement. The next four are simply colours. Blue, yellow, red and white. I don't know if any bells are ringing for you at the moment. Blue, yellow, red and white. Uh, and then the last two are space. Uh, and that is to say an enclosed space, like this space is enclosed by these walls and the floor and the ceiling. So this space. And then bright light is the last one. So there are the ten kasanas. And the idea is that you look and you visualise one of these things, one at a time. So the reason for these kasana meditations is so that you can enter into jhana, enter into the meditative concentrations. Um, which is very interesting because what that means is there are ways to get from worldly happiness, going back to last week, to unworldly happiness. There are ways of entering into the second great level of happiness, the level of unworldly happiness. And it occurs in three stages. First, you simply look at the kasana. Let's say blue. Look at that. Fabulous. That is just about exactly the right colour uh, for the blue kasana. Uh, sometimes translators translate it a dark blue because the word is nila, which means a darkish kind of blue, a deep blue. So that is a wonderful colour to meditate upon. So you would, uh, first of all, you, you would look at something like that. You, you'd normally get a disc and paint it blue. And then you would just look at that disc. So you look and look and look. Yeah? That's your meditation practice. Just like the mindfulness of breathing, only instead of the breath, that would be your concentrate, the objects of concentration. And this is the first stage, and it's called the parikama nimitta, or the preparatory image. After a while, you close your eyes and then you try to see that blue disc in your mind's eye. Yeah? So you look and then you close your eyes and you try to see it. And this is called the Ugaha Nimitta, or the acquired image. At first, this acquired image is unstable and unclear comes and goes, moves around, you can't keep it. You know what it's like when you try to visualise something, it's sort of there but sort of not, isn't it? And you can't quite grasp it, so it's a bit like that at first, but you keep going, keep going, keep going. And then comes the stage of the counterpart image, which is the Patibhaga Nimitta. The Patibhaga Nimitta. And what this happens here is, it suddenly becomes that thing that you've been trying to see very imperfectly suddenly becomes as clear in your mind as it looks to your physical eye. It suddenly becomes very, very clear to you. And with the counterpart image, you enter into the Upachara Samadhi, which is access concentration. Access concentration is the doorway Sometimes it's called neighbourhood concentration. You could call it next-door concentration. It's next door to the first jhana. It's right up close against it. Any more concentration, you'd enter into the first jhana. So it's the very top end 
of worldly happiness, as far as you can go with worldly happiness. And it just, you, if you keep on going, you'll just enter into the first jhana, into unworldly happiness. Last week, do you remember, I also spoke about the, the four sub-levels of each of these three great levels of happiness. Uh, pity, joy, or rapture. Uh, sukha, or more calm, quiet happiness. And then equanimity. And then freedom. And uh, freedom, I suggested, was the freedom to move from that level of happiness, worldly happiness, to the unworldly. So perhaps you could say that access concentration is freedom. You're just experiencing freedom from the senses into the, uh, the jhanas. So, I think these ten kasinas are, could be, anyway, the foundation of the whole idea of visualising the pure land. Um, so I want to go back to the four colour cassinas, yeah, which are blue, yellow, red and white, in that order. So I'll just quote the Buddha, I think it's the Buddha, talking about visualising the blue cassina. One sees external forms that are blue in colour, blue in appearance, of blue hue. Just as a flax flower, which is blue in colour, blue in appearance, or blue hue, or a Benares cloth, smoothed on both sides, that is blue in colour, blue in appearance, of blue hue. There are nine blues in that short sentence. Nine times it mentions blue. And there's a reason for that. Because when you're trying to visualise the colour blue, it really helps you to keep on saying blue in your mind. Blue. It really helps you to really get that colour blue. So the idea is where you would look at that wall, for instance, and just see, keep saying blue, blue. And uh, it's quite marvellous, actually, that um, when you, you visualise this blue disc, then you close your eyes. And then when you see the blue, the idea, I think, is for the disc to be big enough so that it, it covers the whole of your vision. There's no outside to it. Because when you close your eyes, you're asked to visualise blue in front and behind and to the left and to the right and above and below, the six directions, blue everywhere. In other words, you are not looking at blue, but you are now in blue. You're, as it were, submerged or immersed in the colour blue. Can you just imagine what that might be like? Especially if you love that colour blue, the feeling tone of being in blue, immersed in the colour blue. So in the shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, the lotuses are described in almost exactly the same way as the colour cassinas. Blue lotuses grow in these lotus ponds. Lotuses blue in colour, of blue hue, blue in appearance. Yellow lotuses grow there, yellow in colour, of yellow hue, yellow in appearance. Red lotuses grow there, red in colour, of red hue. Red in appearance. Pure white lotuses grow there. Pure white in colour of pure white hue. 
pure white in appearance. Many coloured lotuses grow there of many colours, of many hues, many coloured in appearance. Remember, this is a practice to be done, not a book to be read. Because of that, I've come to the conclusion that, um, well, this is the reason I've come to the conclusion that the Pure Land is based on these kasinas. According to Buddha Gosha, going back to Buddha Gosha and his Vasudhimaga, meditating on the colour blue or yellow or red brings the meditator to the liberation through the beautiful. The liberation through the beautiful. That sounds really great, doesn't it? It's not liberation of enlightenment or awakening. It's the liberation from the world of the senses into the archetypal realm, the realm of the imagination, the realm of archetypal beauty. And it's very interesting, I think, that the way to get from the world of the senses to the archetypal realm is by really looking at things in this world. You don't try to get away from them, you really, really look at them. You really look very, very closely. And that is the way to a world beyond this world that we can see here. Meditation on the fourth colour, white, uh, is different because it results not in uh, the liberation through the beautiful. It results in seeing visible objects with the divine eye, the divya chakshus. What that means, its significance, we'll, I'll talk about later. So, there's a very obvious difference between the kasinas, the ten, the ten kasinas that I mentioned, and the objects in Sukhavati. The kasinas are all found in the physical world, here in this world, whereas the objects in Sukhavati are imaginary. Not completely imaginary, though. They are recognisable objects from this world, but transfigured by the imagination. Trees made of jewels. Lotuses, the size of cartwheels. Earth, that is gold. This is what tends to happen to the counterpart image, that third level of uh, meditating on the Kasina. When the meditator passes from access concentration into jhana, the counterpart image becomes more than a very realistic representation of that thing. It's imbued with an archetypal beauty, free from the constraints of the physical world. Buddha says of the difference between the acquired, the second level, of Kasana meditation and the counterpart image, that third level. In the acquired image, any fault in the Kasana is apparent. So, ah, there's a fault. There's a fault in that blue. You probably can't see it, but there's a scratch mark across there. So, if I was to, when I'm just trying to see that, I'll probably see that scratch mark now. It's not completely perfect, that blue wall there. But the counterpart image appears as if 
breaking out from the acquired image. Breaking out from the acquired image. And a hundred times, a thousand times more purified. Like a looking, dra- like a looking glass disc. No, yeah. Like a looking glass disc drawn from its case. Like a mother of pearl dish well washed. Like the moon's disc coming out from behind a cloud. Like cranes against a thundercloud. Isn't that amazing? Buddha Gosha, who so often we think of as a rather dry old scholar, he's written this, fabulous. Those last two, the counterpart image breaks out from the acquired image like the moon's disc coming out from behind a cloud, like cranes against a thundercloud. Amazing. In other words, with the rising of the counterpart image, we become creative. Up until then, with the first two levels of the Kassana meditation, where you're looking at the image and then you're trying to see it with your eyes closed, you're, as it were, a viewer. You're looking at something, just trying to see it as it is. But with the counterpart image, we begin to create that world anew. Not that we're trying to do that. We're not willing that to happen. The interesting thing about the counterpart image is it's not willed. The first two are willed. You're trying to do something. The third one comes of its own accord. It breaks out of its own accord. So something is happening which you are not in control of. It begins to happen to you. The creative process cannot be willed into existence. This is all about the sense of sight, isn't it, so far? But other senses are included in the Sukhavati Vyuha Sutras. Here's another little bit from the shorter one. When the wind stirs the rows of palm trees and the nets of small bells which adorn them, they make a delightful sound which soothes the mind. Just as the countless hundreds of thousands of divine musical instruments make a delightful sound which soothes the mind when they are played, so too the rows of palm trees and the nets of small bells which adorn them make a delightful sound which soothes the mind when the wind stirs them. Just as the countless thousands, hundreds of thousands of divine musical instruments make a delightful sound, as if we know what that sounds like. They're just assuming that we've heard that. What might the counterpart image of sound be, I wonder? What might that be like when it breaks out from that sound? If you were listening to sound as a meditation, maybe the sound of a bell. There must be a counterpart image to that sound, mustn't there? What must it be? What might that sound like to us? Have you heard of Olivier Messiaen, the French 20th century composer? Um, he used to record bird song, he used to go out into the field, record bird song in his old cassette thing. Not even a cassette, it was before cassettes, isn't it? When he had this, these big reels going around recording them. He would take the recording home and painstakingly transcribe their songs onto 
staved music. And then he would create music based on these sounds. When you hear it, it doesn't sound anything like birdsong. It doesn't much sound like any other kind of music you've heard either. So it's birdsong, but transfigured. Transfigured into what he considered beauty. He possessed a form of synesthesia. Do you know what synesthesia is? It's when uh, two senses come together. It's the union of the senses. And his form was called chromesthesia. He saw sounds. He saw them. So I'll just quote what he said here. When I listen to music, I see corresponding colours. These are wonderful and undescribable colours of extraordinary diversity. Just as sounds stir, change and move, in correspondence, these colours move in constant metamorphosis. There's a lovely story of him. being a contemporary, not, con- not exactly contemporary because he, he died a few years ago, but um, his music is not very conventional. So in his lifetime, it wasn't played very often. But when it was played, his great symphony, the Turangalila Symphony, which is a massive, great work. I actually was in Stockholm a few years ago and it was on there. So I went uh, and it was marvellous, absolutely marvellous. But... Um, uh, whenever that was being played, which wasn't very often, he would travel the world just to hear it. And he would go to the rehearsals. And there's a lovely story of him in, uh, sitting in on the rehearsal of the piece. And uh, in a break, the conductor came up to him and said, how do you think it's going? What do you think? He said, yeah, it's really good. But the trombones, can you make them more orange, please? <laughs> So his colour sounds, les sons couleurs, were of utmost importance to him. Based upon his deep religious belief, he was a very, very committed Christian. He thought that colour music similar, um, was similar to the church windows of the Middle Ages. This helped to overcome the conventional perception, the conventional perception to bring about a state of being that blind uh, being of being blinded that ultimately led to faith extraordinary he wrote a number of pieces of music based on color and one of them was called the colors of the celestial city is that a marvelous idea the colors of the celestial city so you're listening to colors which he compared to the rose window of a cathedral in flaming and invisible colours. So this idea about faith, colour and faith for him, I want to just go back to this idea of when the wind stows, uh, stirs the rows of palm trees and the nets of bells, we hear this beautiful sound. Immediately after that, in the sutra, the Buddha says, when the people hear those sounds... They recollect the Buddha in their bodies. They recollect the Dharma in their bodies. They recollect the Sangha in their bodies. So they imbibe the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha into their bodies by listening to the sounds of the trees and the bells in the trees as they're stirred by the winds. Hmm. So far... Last week and this week, 
I've drawn only on parts of the first of the Pure Land Sutras, the shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, which is very, very simple, only six pages long, very simple compared to the next two. But today, now, I want to talk a little bit about the next one, the longer Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. This tells the mythic history of Sukhavati, how Sukhavati came about a long, long time ago, many aeons ago, innumerable aeons ago. So how long is an aeon? An aeon is a translation of the Indian Kalpa, and a Kalpa is an extremely long time. Um, so you have to use mythical measurements here. So you have to imagine a rock one mile square. And every 100 years, a goddess comes down with a piece of silk, and it has to be Benares silk, apparently, and just strokes that rock once and goes back up. And then 100 years, she comes and does it again. How long would it take for that rock to wear away to nothing? That's how long a kalpa is. So innumerable, countless kalpas ago. So this is really unimaginable, isn't it? You can't possibly imagine that time. And in a way, the point of it is to stretch your imagination so far that time becomes meaningless. So we're now outside of the dimension of time, you could say. The texts don't say that, but that's, what I, that's the way I interpret them. So there's this guy called Dharmakara, a monk, her, and his teacher is the Buddha Lokeshvara Raja. And it says of uh, this, this man, Dharmakara, that he took the Bodhisattva vow before Lokeshvara Raja. The Bodhisattva vow is the vow to practice for innumerable, countless lifetimes, perfecting oneself so that eventually one is reborn in a world without a Buddha. One then becomes a Buddha and, as it were, rediscovers the Dharma for everyone in that world system. That's the Bodhisattva vow. So he took this vow before Lokeshwara Raja, and then he did spend innumerable lifetimes, not waiting until he found the world system. He began to create Sukhavati there and then, and he, he spent innumerable lifetimes doing that, creating Sukhavati through his practice. There's a very interesting bit here where it says, the roots of virtue... Uh, the roots of virtue are kusala mula. They're the, they're the kind of deep ethical basis of our practice. The roots of virtue that he had perfected were such that wherever, wherever he was born, a great multitude of countless hundreds of thousands of millions of precious things appeared out of the earth. He produced all kinds of ornaments made of precious jewels, all kinds of clothes and robes. All kinds of flowers, incense, perfumes, garlands, ointments, parasols, banners and flags. And all kinds of music and song which arose from the palms of his hands. And from every pore on his body he produced all kinds of food and drink which was delicious to eat and exquisite to imbibe as well as all kinds of other enjoyable, delightful things which flowed forth from the palms of his hands as he manifested them. What this really means, 
what the texts are saying is that when you practice the spiritual life, you become beautiful. The spiritual life is a life of beauty. And when you practice the spiritual life, after a while, once you perfect your roots of virtue, everything you touch becomes beautiful. The Bodhisattva's merit is manifested as great beauty. And the world he or she creates is beautiful. And this gives us a very important clue, I think, as to the nature of those features in Sukhavati, what are called the ornaments of Sukhavati, like the jewel trees and the lotus ponds and so on. What are they? They are the outward manifestation of the beauty of Dharmaka's spiritual life. Actually, Sukhavati is not simply the outward manifestation of Dharmaka's spiritual life, because the text also says, all the bodhisattvas who live in Sukhavati are able to plant any kinds of roots of virtue they wish, which come into being the moment the wish arises. Roots of gold, silver, jewels, pearl, lapis lazuli, seashells, crystal, coral, quartz, sapphire, ruby, emerald, or any other kind of precious substance whatsoever. Roots of any kinds of incense, flowers, garlands, ointments, perfumes, powdered sandalwood, robes, parasols, banners, flags, lamps, or any kind of music, dance, and song. So, Sukhavati isn't just made up of Dharmakara's spiritual life, it's made up of everybody who lives there. Dharmakara may well have started it up, but it's being all the time recreated, co-recreated by the Sangha, by the beings who live there. Sukhavati is not just the creation of one person, it's the creation of many, many beings. Not only have they created it, but they cherish the great beauty of the field's ornaments, realising in detail the specifics of the field's beauty and splendour, even if it is by means of the divine eye. So not only do they create beauty, they really appreciate the beauty. They love it, they relish it. And now I can fulfil that promise I made quite a long time ago when I said about the colour white. You know, when you look at the colour white, you don't, it doesn't result in the release through the beautiful, it results in the divine eye. So what is the divine eye? It's a type of clairvoyance. The Buddha had the divine eye. Specifically, it's the ability to see how the actions, the karma, of beings' previous lives determine their present lives and how the actions of their present lives will determine their future lives. So this is one of the marks of the Buddha that he knows from your actions where you're going to be reborn in your next life. So what has this got to do with beauty? So the beings in the land, see the beauty of the ornaments of the land, even if it's by means of the divine eye. The connection between this and the cherishing of the beautiful ornaments, the divine eye and the cherishing of the beautiful ornaments, is this. 
Those objects, those ornaments in Sukhavati are all expressions of the merit of the beings who live there. So the beauty those beings perceive is the karmic result of everyone's skillful actions. They are seeing the beauty of the spiritual life in front of them. An ethical person is a beautiful person. Maybe not physically beautiful, because we're not talking about the beauty of the five senses here. We're talking about spiritual beauty. And I'm sure you've experienced this. You've met someone who is not good-looking. They might be quite old and wizened, and they're not beautiful in the physical sense, but they've got this tremendous beauty. Uh, I often talk about um, being in Dublin a few years ago, and I went to the art gallery. And when I go to art galleries in other countries... I like to go to the art of that country rather than go and look at Impressionists and so on. I think, where's the art of Ireland? So I went to the art of Ireland and there was this fantastic picture which really arrested me. Of, um, it was by uh, Mabel... Mabel somebody, I can't remember her second name now. Trevor, Mabel Trevor. And uh, it was called The Fisherman's Mother. And it's a wonderful painting of an old, very old woman looking straight at you. And she's got a rosary coming from her hand. She's sort of telling her where it beads. And she's looking slightly up because she's quite bent over like this. She's got this dark blue robe on, a little white there. And she's kind of looking up. And she's got this very slight smile. And she's utterly radiant, utterly beautiful, just quite marvellous. Look it up on YouTube or somewhere, uh, Flickr, somewhere like that. It's on Flickr. Um, the Fisherman's Mother by Mabel Trevor. Wonderful. I want to end my talk, because it is time to end, isn't it? I want to end by talking about the Bodhi tree in Sukhavati, because it is really quite amazing. The Bodhi tree is uh, in, the tree that the Buddha sat under on the night of his enlightenment. So it's called the Tree of Awakening very often. So the Tree of Awakening, the Bodhi Tree in Sukhavati, is 1,600 yojinas high. Um, so a yojina is about nine miles. So it means the Tree of Awakening is 16,400 miles high, with a breadth of 7,200 miles, while its roots spread out for 4,500 miles. It's therefore considerably bigger than the Earth, whose polar diameter, that's the distance from the North to the South Pole, is a mere 7,000, nearly 8,000 miles, apparently. Back to the tree. Uh, its branches, leaves and blossoms hang down, spreading out for 800 yodinas. The roots grow out for 500 yodinas. It is forever in leaf, forever in bloom, forever in fruit. It has many colours, countless hundreds of thousands of colours. It is adorned with many beautiful ornaments filled with gems and jewels that have the moon's sheen. It surpasses the trees of heaven. It is hung with golden threads. It is adorned with hundreds of jewel necklaces, as well as strings of red and blue pearls. I'm editing here because it goes on for a long, long time. Strings of jewels, nets of bells, nets of gold. And it is decorated at the request of living beings according to their disposition. That's the line, the last line that's important. It is decorated 
at the request of living beings according to their disposition. They have put on that tree the gems and jewels and the golden threads, etc., etc. Bante, our teacher, uh, said once that a wise friend had once said to him, what you love, you adorn. What you love, you adorn. So there's this wonderful connection between beauty and love too, isn't there? Loving parents buy the nicest clothes they can afford for their children, don't they? Lovers buy gifts of clothes and jewellery for each other. Home lovers make their house and garden look as beautiful as their means allow. Family members cut the grass around the grave of their deceased loved ones and place fresh flowers there. And religious devotees decorate their shrines with colourful silks and flowers. What we love, we adorn. What this means, I think, the fact that the tree of awakening is adorned with these beautiful things and the people in Sukhabdi have put them there. And remember, those jewels and so on are their merits, the fruits of their spiritual life. It's a wonderful image of the transference of merits that we do in the seventh stage of the puja, the transference of merits. At the seventh stage of the puja, we say, don't we, may the merit I have gained through this act, go towards the alleviation of the suffering of all beings and through to my future enlightenment. So this idea of transference of one's merits may have originated in the desire to help friends or relatives in illness or at time of death. You would transfer your merits to them, either to make them well again or to make sure they have a good rebirth at death. In Mahayana Buddhism, this idea was extended to transferring one's merits to one's future awakening, future enlightenment. Some scholars refer to this not as transference of merits, but as transformation of merits. Transformation because merit is mundane. It's part of the uh, mundane world. It's part of the, the, the sense world. It's accumulated through the law of karma, which operates within the mundane world. Whereas awakening, insight, is beyond the world. It's lokutra, beyond the law of karma. So, in dedicating one's, one's merits to awakening, in transforming one, transferring one's merits to awakening, you're transforming them from mundane to transcendental. Transforming, you could say, one's worldly and unworldly happiness to still greater unworldly happiness. This is a beautiful way of saying that Buddhists dedicate all the qualities they developed to the goal of awakening. And this means that the tree of awakening in Sukhavati is not only a symbol of the awakened mind, which it is, but it's also a symbol of the Sangha, the spiritual community. Members of the Sangha adorn the path to awakening with their beautiful qualities. So I finished my talk last week by talking about the happiness of Sangha and spiritual friendship. 
And I talked about how the uh, Manchester Buddhist Centre, this wonderful place right in the centre of town, uh, is a portal, a door to higher happiness for the whole of Manchester. The door is open for people to come and experience higher happiness, probably than the kind of happiness that they're used to. Not so much the NBC as a building, but the people who are here. We are the portal to higher happiness. But we can only be the portal to higher happiness if we are practicing the Dharma and experiencing that higher happiness ourselves. As it's often said, the Dharma is not so much taught, not so much taught as caught. People catch that, don't they, when they come in here, isn't it? So often the case that somebody comes in and says, oh, I really like this place, it feels so good, what's all that about? It's us making that atmosphere. It can also be, this place can also be a doorway, a portal to beauty, great beauty, the beauty of the spiritual life. And I know that this place was, when it was refurbished, they did the best possible job they could, given the means that they had at their disposal, the very little money they had and the the very little actual building skills they had, to make this place as beautiful as they possibly could. And the reason is because beauty has a very, very good effect on people. It opens and lifts the heart. It also purifies the mind, making us less selfish, more generous and more kind. Beauty helps us to live the spiritual life because the spiritual life is beautiful. 